Hey, I'm Camille Joy, the host and creator of the Moments of Joy podcast, the place that will leave you surely feeling motivated, inspired, and encouraged. Welcome to the show. I need the joy, the joy of the Lord in my heart. I need to make an exchange. Mm-hmm. My day even starts. Let your light shine. Welcome to another episode of the Moments of Joy podcast. If this is your very first time on the show, this show is a place that will leave you surely feeling motivated, inspired, and encouraged through the words of testimonies. On this show, we share amazing testimonies with the purpose of giving God the glory, showing everyone that listens that no matter what you've been through, God has the glory to bring you out, to pull you up, and to free you, to leave you whole and healed. Everything that he does, he's just so good. Um, Today, we're going to be replaying Sana Latrice from Middletown, Connecticut. And she's going to share with us her amazing story of foster care and adoption. And this is a really good one. She's an amazing storyteller. <laughs> All right, let's sit back and enjoy. God bless. I'm so excited to have our third guest on the podcast, Sana Latrice. Welcome to the show, Sana. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored and humbled to be here and be able to speak to your listeners on today. Yes. I'm going to read a little bit about Sana Latrice. Sana Latrice is a foster kid to adoptee, single mom to wife, speaker, servant, and storyteller. She is a powerful woman of God, and I'm just honored to have her on the show as I am um, just an, I've been on the other side of her testimony, so I have been blessed by her. She's an advocate, she's a philanthropist, and goodness, she's so much, and I hope I got it all in a nutshell, and if I forgot one thing, you can feel free to just let them know who you are. (laughs) I am a servant. Yes. That's what you forgot, but that that's yes. all that I am. I am truly okay. a servant. And so um, my story and my testimony is really not my own. Um, it is really the testimony of God's glory and through it, I'm able to serve. And so that's, that's who I am. I am a servant. Yes. You know, you are one of the first people that I can really say I totally bonded with on social media before we even met in person. Yes. Like, Definitely. I felt like I knew you already. <laughs> I knew you and I had already formed a relationship or a friendship with you. And I was like, oh, hey, when we met in person. <laughs> we just clicked. Isn't God awesome? Yes. So wonderful. And so the first time I witnessed your story, I couldn't hold back the tears just because of God's power. You know, you see this petite woman and you don't really know what's going to come out of her mouth but such power the side giant size anointing um that's on you so i'm so excited that these listeners my listeners um get to experience your story today so we're gonna get started so um your your bio 
I got from Instagram. And it says that you were a foster kid to adopt E. So can you explain to the listeners a little bit how that was and how that came about and what that is? So I am originally from Bridgeport, Connecticut. I have a twin brother. I am older by two minutes. And when we were about five years old, we were taken from our birth mother. Uh, She was addicted to drugs. She was in and out of incarceration and just could not take care of us. So I often say that my first memory of life was literally the police coming into uh, the home that we lived in with our uh, grandmother and our birth mother and raiding the apartment and taking our birth mother. And I remember before they left, uh, my twin brother and I were sitting on the couch with our grandmother and the police looked directly at my grandmother and he said, we will be back, you're next and we'll be taking. Wow. And that is my first memory of life. And sure enough, um, it to me, it feels like it was the next day, but it could have been weeks later, the police uh, came back and they took my grandmother who was also struggling with a drug addiction and DCF came and they took us. And when they found us, we were severely abused. We had been molested, we were malnutrition, um, and we were almost unrecognizable. So the days following us being taken, we were actually placed into Park City Hospital in Bridgeport, which is no longer there. And we lived there for a little while until the doctors were able to get us back to a good healthy point. And when they got us to that point, we were placed into a foster home, which was also in Bridgeport on uh, 6th Street, which is, if you know Bridgeport, it's the east end of Bridgeport. So we were placed in a foster home there. And, you know, God is just so awesome in the way in which he orchestrates and ordains and connects. And we were placed into a foster home of a pastor and a first lady who were just beginning their ministry and their church. And so they were having church downstairs in the basement of their home. And we weren't the only foster children. There were other children in the home that were their biological kids. And there were a couple that they had already adopted. And then there were us. And so we were the youngest of the children that were there. And to be honest, you know, living with that family was the start of my relationship with Christ because they were very serious about God, very serious about church. And so we were automatically placed into rotation, I call it, of being, you know, in the in the children's choir and ushering and all that all that stuff that you do in church as a child, um, we got that experience there. And so life there was, it was pretty good. Uh, The family was very, very strict, but it was a good structured life that we were able to live there, which was something we had never experienced before. Um, The problem with being from Bridgeport, being taken out of your home, in Bridgeport and then being placed into uh, a foster home in the same town is that it wasn't too long that 
our uh, biological mom found out where we were placed. And wow. of course, you know, by this time she had um, been in prison for a little while. So she had been sober for a little bit when she was released and she was able to find us. And we were literally placed two streets away from like her stomping grounds where she, you know, got high in the bar that she uh, would would attend or go to. We were literally about two streets away. And so she found us and, and you know, I, I tell the story that I remember when she came to the house uh, that we were living in and she knocked on the door and I answered the door and she, um, you know, she, she wanted her kids back. And so immediately as a child, as a a six-year-old child, you see your mother and you're like, finally, you know, she's back. She came to get us. And so I was so excited and it's like before I could even open the screen and wrap my arms around her, the door was shut by my foster mother and she was telling, you know, my birth mother, you can't be here. You can't see right. them. You can't be here. Mm-hmm. And I remember my birth mother sitting outside of that door for hours, just screaming, mm-hmm. I want my children back. I want my kids back. And, and I was on the other side of the door crying and screaming, I want my mother. And I couldn't mm-hmm. understand you know, why, why we couldn't leave with her. Nor did I realize then that, you know, she was high. She was high right. even then. But even in the midst of her being high, she still loved her children. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lesson that I had to really learn. But, you know, she stood outside that door for hours and then eventually you know, the screaming stopped and the banging on the door stopped and she was gone. And, you know, that for me was like, it was like being taken all over again. You know, it it was, you kind of have adjusted to this new life and then she comes back. And in the back of your mind, you're praying that she always would have come back, but -hmm. you don't believe that it'll ever happen. And so when it did, and then, you know, she was gone again, it just was like, wow, you know, we can't catch a break, you know? Uh, So it was tough. It was tough being in that position. And then, you know, you're, you're in a foster home where granted, I believe that the family loved us, but I just, you just never fit in. You never feel like you belong. You never get to look into faces of people that you look like. Um, so that right. was something that I carried with me throughout my childhood. And that is sometimes people ask, you know, is it better to be taken from your family when you're of age or is it better when you're a baby? And I, I often say it's better as a, as a baby because, you know, when you're taken at a, at a young age where you are aware of life, you know that you were taken. Right. And, and you know uh, that you don't fit in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it stands out. And so it's, it's, it's a lot harder to adjust. Um, and so it, it was a struggle for my brother and I, and I say often that I think it was a struggle more so for him because we were taken and it was as if he just shut down. He, he literally stopped talking to people when we were taken wow. And so he would communicate through me. So if there was something that he needed, he would whisper in my ear 
and I was his his mouthpiece. And that that happened for a good couple of years. He did not adjust well um, to being taken. And for me, that was the time that I had to grow up because I had to be there for my brother. And so I feel like I lost a lot of my childhood because I was forced to grow up to be there for my brother. And that really shaped the foundation of my life. Like the rest of my life, little did I know, was really being shaped in that relationship with my brother of taking care of and serving someone other than myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were placed into the foster home and then eventually uh, the pastor and the first lady got divorced and we were still able to stay there, but now the first lady was single. And so it was a lot harder for her to take care of us and the other children that she had already adopted and those that were hers, um, it was a lot harder for her to, to take care of us by herself. So there were different services that were put into place to assist her. And so one of those services was respite care. And so with respite care, basically if you needed a break or your, your family's going on vacation and you don't wanna take the foster kids or you know whatever the case may be, DCF will provide uh, respite families, which are families that are put into place to kind of help in that temporary time for vacations and things of that nature. And so we would have um, school vacation and we were we would go to the respite home for school vacations for the days. And there was a family that we were placed with and they had two uh, young sons who were older than me. Um, I believe at the time they had to be teenagers and I was only about six or seven years old and we were placed there. And so, you know, during the day while we were there, one of the sons was actually molesting me. And so my, my brother, my twin brother would be, um, in the living room watching cartoons and I would be, you know, being molested in the bedroom. And at the time when it was happening, I won't say that it was, um, it it was almost like a normal to me because it wasn't the first time I had been molested. So it's almost as if you, you tend to figure out how to be present and not be present and you, and you get through it and you don't talk about it just get through it and you go home because you know we'd go home at the end of the day when when the first lady got out of work and then the next day we would go back and so school vacation would be for a week and for a week you know I would be getting molested and it just it became normal to me and I would just kind of put my plate my head or my mind somewhere else when it was happening and then I would be able to just get through it. And that's that's kind of how I got through it. And I had a social worker. We had a social worker that would come and visit us on a normal basis. She'd come almost every week, every other week. But I never told her. I never came straight out and told her this is what was happening to me. What I did was because I didn't want to get anyone in trouble, but I knew that I didn't feel safe. And so I began to tell my social worker, you know, I, I don't want to be here anymore you know, I don't, I don't want to be in this house anymore. I don't want to be with this family anymore. I just, 
you know, I don't feel right here. And, you know, I would make up lies. I would tell her lies like, you know, they were yelling at us or, you know, they said they don't want us here just because I really wanted her to get us out of there. Right. And so eventually she, you know, she got us out. We, we ended up meeting a family that was interested in adopting us. And so we began to take these um, trips on the weekends. We would, she would take us to New Britain. That's where the family lived. And we would like spend the day. We'd go to like Burger King Castle and Burger King Castle was out, or we would, you know, go to Chuck E. Cheese and spend the day and get to know them and all that stuff. And, and I was excited. I don't know if I was excited that we were going to be adopted or I was just excited that I was not going to be getting molested anymore. But I was just excited. And so eventually the day came, we were at school and the principal came and she's like, you know, I need you to come on down to the cafeteria. Your social worker's here to get you. And when me and my brother and I got to the cafeteria, they had this big party for us. Like the whole school was there. Everybody knew that we were getting adopted and we, we were off. We had the party and we went straight to New Britain to our new family in New Britain. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Your story is um, totally encouraging. Thank you. I'm I'm just sitting on the edge of my seat and just knowing that someone out there is listening and someone out there has been through what you have been through as a child and can see themselves in your testimony. And so I'm just rejoicing at the healing that it's going to bring. Um, it's so powerful. Thank you. My goodness. Okay, so we are at you being adopted. And and at this point, how old are you and your brother? You guys um, obviously got adopted together. How old are you and your brother? And do you, do you begin to act out? Because at this point, you had already been molested more than once so did that begin to show at all so when we got adopted my brother and I really faced trauma in two different ways and it wasn't until as an adult that I look back on it and I can see that we were both dealing with trauma but back then it felt like my brother was just acting out and I was an overachiever like that's what it felt like at the time. So we got, we were seven years old. It was just before our eighth birthday when we got adopted and we, well, we were actually eight when we got adopted. So we were seven when we came to this new family. This new family um, was a husband and wife. They had a son together already who was a couple years, about two years older than us. And then um, the husband, my, my father, my adopted father had a few children older from a previous relationship. And so they initially were looking to adopt a daughter. And so when they started looking through the adoption book, they were searching for a daughter and they came across my brother and I, well, they came across me. And then, you know, it was explained to them that the birth mom had requested that we stay together, that however we ended up being adopted, that we were adopted together. That was her request. And so they honored the request and they ended up taking us both. 
so we get to this home. It, it was beautiful. It was definitely, it was different from our foster home because there was a lot less children. Uh, the apartment was smaller. They were more structured. It was very structured, very, um, I won't say strict. I will say just structured. And we were enrolled in school. And immediately that's when we started to notice the differences in, in kind of the trauma. So my brother struggled a lot in school. He had to go through like speech therapy because again, I told you he had literally stopped talking. So he had to go through speech therapy and different type of, you know, getting additional help for stuff because he, uh, he was struggling. And I, on the other hand, was excelling. Um, you know, my homework was always turned in. I didn't need extra help. They didn't have to worry about if I did my work or or anything. Like I, I was trying to be perfect. And the reason I wanted everything to be perfect is because I felt safe, finally. And so I didn't want to do anything to interrupt my safety. So I made sure that I worked as hard as I could so they didn't get mad at me. Um, I tried to be, you know, beyond while most kids were reading small books, I was reading the dictionary. Like it was yeah. it was important for me to be smart and to excel in school. And and meanwhile, my brother was struggling a lot. And as time went on, we started to notice different ways in which we handled trauma. So I developed a really bad temper. I didn't like to be told what to do, especially when it came to my brother, because I was so used to being his protector that now I was in this home where I didn't have to protect him anymore. I could be the child and I didn't know how to be the child. Mm. So, you know, my adopted mother would tell him what to do. And I'd like, tell him, you don't have to do that. Or you listen to me. It, it was a struggle. <laughs> or she would tell me what to do. And I didn't like being told what to do. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't like, I, 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 I had a way of, of which I wanted to do things, but I felt like I knew everything. I didn't need anyone's help. You know, I didn't know how to be a child. And mm -hmm. that's, that became a problem. Um, very quickly, it became a problem. And we began to kind of butt heads. And I would go through moments where, you know, but prior to coming to this adopted family's home, when I was still in foster care, they had put me in, um, I had a therapist that they were asked having me to go see. And my temper was so bad and I didn't want to share or talk about things that I literally threw a chair through the glass door. Like when I got upset, it was zero to a hundred. There was no middle ground. And when I got upset, it was... Uh, it was violent. It, it was very violent. I wanted to hurt people or whatever was around me when I got upset. But other than that, you know, I was like the perfect child. You know, I, I tried to be perfect. Um, and so those are the ways in which the trauma really began to show in us. So my brother was doing, you know, different things. He's struggling in school. He started stealing, you know, little stuff. And, and that's how the trauma was shown. Um, and so it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. And when it got to the day that we were about to get adopted and we stood before the judge in the, in the courtroom and they asked us, you know, they go through all of the legalities and then they ask you the child, are you sure that you want to be adopted into this family? 
And I literally, I remember pausing. Like I had to think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I had, it was like, I was weighing my options. Like, is this where I really want to be? Or could there be somewhere better for me? And right. a lot of that was just because I wasn't used to like being told what to do. I wasn't used to being the child and having a parent parent me. So I felt like there was another opportunity for me somewhere else, even at the age of eight. And wow. then I was also thinking if I say yes, that means my mom definitely can't come back and get us. Like my mm. birth mom definitely can't come. And so if I start to stay with this family and I love this family, then I'm I'm almost like cheating on my mom. Like that's that's how I felt. And so I was battling with that at that moment. Little did I know that in order to have gotten to that moment, my birth mother had already given up her parental rights. So she wasn't coming wow. back. Uh, but oh, I, I didn't know that at eight. At eight, I'm still trying to mm. hold on to my to the to the hope that she's coming back for us. Right. And um because it's like, you know, no matter what happens between a child and a mother, the parent could be totally wrong. But the child is always gonna yearn for their mother. Always. Always. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I wanted. And I I agreed, you know, yes we'll get adopted. And sometimes I think I agreed out of fear. Like I don't want to get a beaten. Um, so, <laughs> so let me just go with this. And so I, you know, we ended up getting adopted and I was able, we had the option to change our name at the adoption mm-hmm. proceedings because they, they literally issue you a new birth certificate and everything. It's like you have a new life. Wow. And so they offered us the opportunity to change our name and I chose to keep my first name Sana because it's the name that I've had for eight years, the only name that I knew, but I decided to change my middle and last name. And so my middle name was actually given to me by my cousin. She, mm-hmm. she was the one that suggested my middle name, Latrice. And so I took to that name. And then of course my last name changed to the last name of my adopted family, which was Mayfield. And then my brother chose to do the same thing. He kept his first name, but he changed his middle and his last name as well. And so, you know, now we're adopted. And so when you're adopted, you know, it's no more um, social worker. Right. The visitation, because we were still able to go visit our birth mom in prison, that stopped because now her rights have been you know, removed. And, and so she no longer has rights. So we weren't able to do that. So it was kind of like, you know, wait a minute. I didn't, I didn't sign up for all of this, uh, but that's what happened. And so we adjusted now into a new life uh, all over again of being adopted and, and going into middle school and going into high school. And for me, I think it really, really started to weigh on me when I got to high school. Um, when I got to high school around that time, my birth mother's, I'm sorry, my aunt's, my, my adopted mother's sister was incarcerated and she called my birth, my adopted mom one day, which was her sister. And she said, you know, I'm in here in this, in the cell and, um, I have, there's someone in here and she's talking about these twins that she gave up for adoption and their names she's she told she said that you know the daughter's name is sana 
and she has a brother and she really wants to see her twins. She's been diagnosed with AIDS. And so, you know, she doesn't have long to live. And I know that, you know, they've been placed with you. Mm. And so I really think you should bring them here to the jail and let them, you know, let them meet her. And so at this time, you know, we're, we're, we're close, we're about 15 years old now. So we've been adopted now for a good seven, eight years, you know, life has kind of gone on and you, 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 you don't forget your birth mom, but you, you kind of have to forget her in order to move forward. And mm-hmm. so when my adopted mom came to tell us, you know, that they had found our birth mom and did we want to see her? Of course, I was like ecstatic. I, I couldn't wait. You know, my, my brother was a little more reserved. He didn't really say much, but he went along with it. And I remember we went up to the prison and we got to see her. And when she came out of the, um, from the back, you know, I, I just talked and talked. Like I couldn't believe that my mom was there. Like I was staring into a face that looked identical to mine. And, you know, I, my brother just stayed quiet. Like the entire visit, he didn't say anything. And I just talked and talked and talked. I had so many questions and I just was so excited. And we ended up becoming pen pals because she was still in prison for a few more months after that and so we became pen pals and then she got out of prison and uh, my adopted mom allowed her to come she would come on the weekends and pick us up like on a Friday evening and bring us back on Sunday and we'd go down to Bridgeport and you know we'd meet different family members some of our birth family and you know it felt normal like Mm -hmm. finally you know this is what I'm home. Like I'm with my mom. You know, this is home. I'm so excited. And it didn't last long. Eventually she started doing drugs again and she would come and pick us up and then she'd leave us at different people's house and, you know, not come back and get us. She left us at a crack house and, you know, just different stuff. And so of course our adopted mom stopped the right, the visits. Mm-hmm. And, and of course. Um, you know, so she stopped those visits and I couldn't even, it was like I was torn between being upset with my foster mom and then being upset with my birth mom. Because even though I knew that we shouldn't have been in those crack houses or she shouldn't have dropped us off to this place or, you know, even though I knew that, I just wanted to be with my mom. Right. And so I would go through whatever I had to go through to be with my mom. And so eventually she ended up going back to prison and I lost contact with her, but a piece of me was still in Bridgeport and I just desired to be back in Bridgeport. Like I remember my, my, the the summer before my sophomore year, I was like, I have to be in Bridgeport. Like I need to be around the people that I look like. I, I just... I want to be there. I don't want to be here. And, and my mother, my adopted mom and I had started really butting heads. And I just was like, I was running away and just, I was really going through some stuff because my adopted mom is the sweetest woman ever, but she's not a woman that you can sit down and pour your heart out to. And she's going to, you know, speak into you. She's, she's very, very structured. She's non-emotional. She's not the one to say, I love you. And those are the things that I, that I desired. I needed that. Like I was, I was fiending for that type of love and I wasn't getting it, um, in the way in which I needed it. 
And so I felt like Bridgeport, my family in Bridgeport was going to give that to me. So I need to go back to Bridgeport. And so I literally went back to Bridgeport. Like I, I don't even know how I did it, but I got back to Bridgeport and I spent the summer there. And I remember my, my adoptive mom kept calling my aunt's house saying, you know, when are you coming back? And, you know, and I'm like, I'm not coming back. I am not coming back. Like I, you know, I had got a taste of freedom in Bridgeport. You know, I had, there was no rules at my aunt's house. I could come and go when I wanted to. There were men, not even boys. There were men um, around. And so I'm like, you know, house parties and all this stuff. Like I was living the life. You, I was not coming back. And you know, eventually she's like, well, you know, the summer was winding down. School was about to start. And she's like, you know, you really need to come back home. So I ended up going back home. And that is when life for me changed, like drastically. So when I went to Bridgeport, I left my my twin brother. I didn't, um, I, I just was, it was all about me. And I just left. And when I came back from Bridgeport, my twin brother was gone. Wow. He had been um, arrested and he was in jail and he was given, I think, 15 years. What? He was given 15 years. And so I, I came back and that's the news that I got. Like I, you know, you come home and you're like, oh, well, where's he at? He's not here. Well, where's he at? He's in jail. He's in jail. What is, you know, what is he doing in jail? And no one really talked about it. No one talked about how we got to jail, what happened. And so for me, it was like, I left with a twin brother and I came back and a, a part of my heart was gone. Yeah. And because that was kind of like um, a reminder of your mother. That was the only person that I could look into the face of on a daily basis. And he shared the same blood that I shared. Mm. That was the person that I literally came into this world with. That was the person that up until that point, I was his protector. And so I left and I left room for my brother to spiral out of control. Hmm. And he went to prison. And so at that point, I was like, I was angry. I was angry at my adoptive mom. I felt like she had betrayed me. I felt that she had been dishonest. I, I just didn't understand how, you know, as many times that we had spoken over the summer, you never mentioned that you know, that he was gone. I was upset. And so I was really like, okay, I don't, I really don't want to be here. I have Mm -hmm. to leave here. And Mm -hmm. so I signed myself out of high school, my sophomore year. I signed, and I don't even, to this day, I don't even know how my high school allowed me to do it. But I, I didn't even know that a child would be able 
to just go in and sign themselves out and say, uh, I'm no longer going to be a student, I a brought, child. I brought, um, at the time, my, got my, my birth aunt, who let me do whatever I want, she had a boyfriend, and I needed to go get my transcripts because the plan was I was going to enroll myself into Job Corps. In order to get into Job Corps, you have to have your transcripts from school. So... I had him bring me there to the school. And for whatever reason, they didn't question that he wasn't my father. And they gave me the transcripts. And I signed out of school and I enrolled into Job Corps. And I went to Job Corps. Wow. And I was 16 years old. By this time, I was now 16. And I went to Job Corps in Grafton, Massachusetts. And, you know, I remember being 16 years old, though, and Job Corps was the thing. I remember I had a baby when I was 16 years old, and I remember asking my mother, can I just leave school and go to Job Corps? She's like, what? But, like, you know, you would have a lot of friends or not even friends, but you would hear around the neighborhood or, you know, your friends that so-and-so went to Job Corps, so-and-so went to Job Corps, and it's like a okay now they're grown so they can do what they want they can go to school <laughs> exactly and i had a cousin so my birth cousin who i had gotten really close to she was actually pregnant and she was going to job corps and she didn't want to go to job corps by herself so okay. i said well i'll go to job corps with you i had no business going to job corps i was a straight a student like high honors ridiculous it it was Mm. no reason for me to go to job corps other than that and i went to job corps and when i got there and realized what job corps was like you you know you're you're it was like college it was like high school college and i was in i was in job corps i went and i got my ged like the second day i was there because i i shouldn't have been there like so you know, they put all these steps in place, all these goals for you to achieve. And, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to get your GED. I didn't even know what a GED was. They gave me this test and they're like, you know, it's going to be a couple hours and you take this test. And I said, okay. And I got in there and I remember I took that test and then I fell asleep in the middle of the test and everybody else is still doing the test. And I woke up finished the test and walked out. I passed the test. Oh my goodness. Like the first time everybody else had to go back for classes and retake the test and all this stuff. Like I was done with the test. They should have kicked me out of job Corps right Mm -hmm. then, but they didn't. And my cousin ended up leaving the next week. She left. And so she left me high and she dry. She left me high and dry. She went back home to her baby father. And oh I was in Job Corps. But I will tell you, Job Corps was the best experience for me. I needed it because it just okay. gave me a time to be by myself. And, you know, in essence, I think I was just running away from my reality. And Job mm-hmm. Corps allows you to be able to do that. You can get lost in Job Corps. You can create a whole new life in Job Corps. And 
that's what I, that's what I did. Like I just, I lost myself in job course. So I did the culinary arts program. I met a lot of friends, you know, I just had a good time. It was like peace. It was my moment of peace. And I'm so thankful for it because when I finally left or when they finally kicked me out, because I didn't even leave, they just kicked me out. And uh, um, I, I left job court and I was hit with like the reality of now you are 17 years old. You're, you've got a GED, so you're not going back to high school. What next? Uh You know, what next? And so of course the next thing is, well, you know, get a boyfriend right? (laughs) and and you, you know, lose your virginity and you, Uh you know, do all that stuff. And, and that's what I did. And I ended up getting myself involved with a man who would eventually become my child's father. And I entered into a world that I was not prepared for. Now, when you say you got with a man, was he older than you? He was, he's only a couple years older than me, but he was already more mature than me. So he had already been in a relationship um with a with a young lady you know they had a child together she she had been living with him so you know he was already more mature than me this was my first time ever living with a man you know all that stuff and the problem with being adopted with having those different traumas with not being loved the way you feel like you should be loved. You start to force yourself into arms of men who can't, whose arms were not created to hold you. That's right. And wow. so like you start forcing your arm yourself into those arms. And mm-hmm. even when you see the flags, even when, you know, you know, this is not real, you force yourself to believe it's real. Absolutely. And so I, you know, ended up in a relationship with him and it was toxic. It was toxic for both of us, you know, and for a long time, I would like to say that, you know, it was all him and there was a lot of him, you know, I, I, he, he cheated on me left and right. You know, I got pregnant with our son and, and I gave birth and I wake up from, recovery from having a c-section and in walks this female that he had a baby with before me and you know what i mean and and she's Mm -hmm. up here and they're they're like together now well we're together so how are y'all together so you know you you instantly snap into like this survival mode so i'm you know now i'm starting to fight i'm fighting her i'm fighting him you know i'm just all over the place I have a newborn child. Where am I going to stay? You know, I was just all over the place and I was hurt and I was angry. And my mindset was, you did me wrong. I'm going to do you worse. Mm -hmm. And so whatever that meant, if that meant today, I'm going to wake up and bust every car window of your car, then that's what I'm going to do. If it meant Mm -hmm. I'm going to slash all your tires, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, whatever it meant, that's what I did. And, you know, if it meant I need to go to jail because you put your hands on me and I'm gonna hit you back. And now the police are saying we both got to go to jail for domestic, for a domestic charge. Well, take me to jail because you going to jail. 
Yeah, because hurt people hurt people. Exactly. And, yeah. and I, I went through that for a very, very long time. And I, you know, I had to, I had to snap out of it. And I think that, um, in the midst of it, you know, I, my, my apartment, I was living in Marina village and my apartment was, um, I was, I experienced a home invasion and, you know, I was, I was almost raped in the midst of it. It was just a lot of chaos going on. And for people that are listening that don't know what Marina village is, it's a, a project here in Connecticut. Yes. One of one in. of the worst mm-hmm. projects in Connecticut. And I literally, you know, I was I was a victim of a home invasion. Like a real life home invasion. Literally they kicked wow. in the door and they um gagged me, they covered my eyes, they tied up my hands and tied up my feet. And, you know, they pistol whipped my son's father. Um, oh, my goodness. And they tore my apartment up looking for drugs because mm. they thought that my son's godfather was a drug dealer. And mm-hmm. one of them tried to rape me right. in the midst of it. And and nobody but God that there was another gentleman who stopped it from happening. And that we wow. all ended up getting out of that house alive. Um, you know, and that for me was kind of like a wake up call. Like, I don't even know what's, what I'm doing here. Like, I don't have to be here. At that point, how old were you? So at that point I was 20. Wow. I had just had my son. Um, I was 20 years old and. So you just kept on experiencing trauma after trauma, trauma after trauma, after trauma, after trauma. And at some point you have to wake up Mm -hmm. and you have to realize that this is not the life that you were created to live. Mm -hmm. And at some point you have to hold yourself accountable and realize that some of these situations you put yourself in. Mm -hmm. And you, I had to have that moment. I had to have that moment where I'm like, I do not even have to be here. Why am I here? I could go back home to my my adopted family and I could be there safe. Absolutely. I can relate to that moment. <laughs> you know, but your heart, Definitely. your your heart yep. is still in love with someone who doesn't mm-hmm. even see you. Right. Absolutely. Wow. And so you're stuck in this place of trying to to fit in where you don't fit in. Right. Yes. And so, you know, I remember a few years before that, I remember I was sitting on a porch on Lenox Avenue at my aunt's house in Bridgeport. And it was Christmas Eve and everybody was upstairs, like opening gifts early. And I was downstairs because I didn't have any Christmas gifts. No one had bought me a Christmas gift. And I was sitting on the porch and it was freezing cold and I was crying and I was saying, you know, God, I don't, you know, I don't want to be here. God, I need you to help me because I had always had my connection with God through everything. The foundation of what started back on sixth street and my Mm -hmm. foster family was still there. So I still knew who to cry out to. And Mm -hmm. so I cried out to God and I just begged him to one day, 
let my life be better. Right. And I remember, you know, that, that voice saying, you're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. And so as I sat in Marina village and my house, you know, had been, had been just tore up and I'm looking at a man who I'm, I am with, who's supposed to be my protector and I don't feel protected. And I'm saying, God, remember that prayer where I asked you to make my life better and you told me I was going to get through this? Well, when? Mm-hmm. When am I going to get through this? And so we, I ended up leaving. Um, my my uncle, who was my birth mom's youngest um, sibling or brother, ended up coming to get me and, and packing me up and making me leave. And I remember him telling me, you know, you are better than this. Right. You, I will not allow you to become what you see around you. Mm-hmm. And so he packed me up and he moved me back home, back to Middletown. And so mm-hmm. now you come back home to this adopted family who you have essentially run away from. You right. are, you were totally angry and you're coming back with a child. Right. right. Of course. Right. You're coming back with a child. You have no car. You have nothing. Mm-hmm. You're on state assistance and you're trying to figure it out. You're trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. And the same issues that were there when you left are still there mm-hmm. because they were never resolved. Right. And you're trying to figure it out. And so I had to figure it out. I I literally had to figure it out. I had to get a job. I had to get my son back and forth to daycare on my own because my mother, you know, she said, you, you had a child, you're going to raise this child. I'm not babysitting. I'm not, you know, doing any of that. Um, You're going to raise your child. You got to get him to daycare. You get on that bus, which the bus stop was like a mile and a half from the house. And I would walk to the bus every day with my son in a stroller and walk home every day and do what I had to do to raise Mm -hmm. my son until I was able to get a car and get on my, you know, get on my own two feet. And I'm doing this essentially as a single parent because my son's father is not a part of his life. He's not financially supporting him. You know, he's, he's doing his own thing. We can't even be in the same room together because it's so toxic. We can't even talk mm-hmm. on the phone mm-hmm. because it's so toxic. And the person suffering was my son. Right. Of course. Through all of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, because God has a script for our strengths, but yes. he also has a plan for our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The way in which it all evolved is one day my son's father came to pick my son up and he had a new girlfriend and I didn't know about her. Not that it was my business to know about her because right. we weren't together, but he had this new girlfriend and he came to pick my son up and he was just like brand new. Like he was real disrespectful. He was calling me out my name. He was taking me back to places that I thought I had, you know, buried. And I was 
upset. And I put my son in the car. He was sitting in the driver's seat. His girlfriend was in the passenger seat. I put my son in the back seat in the seatbelt. And I was sitting next to him. And I just literally snapped. I, 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 that's the best way to describe it is I snapped. And the only thing that I could think to do is I'm going to kill him. Mm -hmm. That was my thought. And so he had a thick gold chain on and I was sitting right behind him in the back seat. And I just grabbed that gold chain with all of my strength and I pulled it back to me and his head hit the the headrest of the car and he was gagging for air and i was just pulling and pulling that chain to the point where blood started coming from my palms to the mm. point where his neck you know was was getting the imprint of the chain and he was literally you know gasping for air he was seconds away from just being gone and I was so calm because in the midst of it, everything he had ever done to me, every time he told me my son wasn't going to amount to nothing, every time he said I wasn't worth anything, the women, all of that just flashed before my eyes. And right. I just wanted it to be over. Mm -hmm. And I remember my cousin finally because it, it was like I couldn't even hear anything it was just I couldn't hear anything and I couldn't see anything except that gold chain and the blood dripping from my hands and my cousin said you know she was yanking me and like trying to get me out the car and finally her husband like grabbed my hands and got the chain loose and so you know I snapped back into reality and my son's father's like <gasps> because he was he was almost gone. And mm. my cousin's like, look at you. You're losing your mind. Like, snap out of it. Snap out of it. And I wasn't done. She got me out that car, but I was still so angry that he was still alive. I took a brick and I threw it at his car window. Mm -mm. And my son was still sitting in the car. In the back in the seat. And I, it was like, all, all I wanted to do was tunnel vision. Was, mm -hmm. I'm going to get you back. For everything that you've done for to me that was it like I just saw red and and that day changed my life forever because the very next day my cousin invited me to church and I remember the night before I just cried out to God again and I said God I need a man that's going to love me. I need a, I want to be treated right. I want to, you know, be in love. I want all, I, I'm tired of being hurt. I'm, I'm just tired. And I fell asleep crying that night. And the next morning, my cousin invited me to a new church that she had started visiting her and her husband. And I'm like, I am not going to church. You know, my hands are all bloody and looking disgusting and wrapped up. And I, my face is puffy from crying all night. And, you know, I just look disheveled. I don't want to be going to church because, you know, I still knew what church was. And I certainly right. didn't feel not a bit of saved. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up going to that church because um, she's like, if you go this one time, I won't ask you anymore. And so I'm like, fine, let me just go. And I went to the church and I walked up the steps. And as I got there, there was a gentleman standing outside and he was talking on his cell phone. He was on crutches 
and he's talking on his cell phone and I I had never seen him before. And I looked at my cousin and I said, I'm going to marry that man. And she said, girl, you are here for church. <laughs> you don't need no man. You almost went to jail yesterday for murder. And you talking about that's going to be your husband. You don't even know that man. And I said, I'm telling you, God told me he's going to be my husband. Mm. And when I tell you, we ended up, I, I watched him the entire service. Um, my, I my eyes were just fixed on him. And we ended up going on a date. I, I, I approached him after the service. We exchanged numbers. We ended up going on a date the following Friday. And he moved in with me on the following Sunday. So literally a week from the day I met him. Broke all the rules. Broke all the rules. You know, totally unconventional. He turns out to be the pastor's son. And we shacking. Like, that's just what it was. And we ended up, you know, he moved in with me. He moved in with me. And see, this is where God is just so ridiculously, unbelievably amazing. And you know that when you cry out to him, he's going to answer your prayer. Because we go to meet his grandmother, which was his mother's mother. His mother passed away when he was 16. We go to meet his grandmother on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Remember I said that. And... Mm -hmm. We go up to the door and we knock on the door and he's introducing me to her for the first time. And he says, you know, grandma, I want you to, I want you to meet Sana. You know, uh, this is my girlfriend. And, and she said, I already know her. And he said, no, grandma, you don't, you don't know her. Well, he called her Nana. No, Nana, you don't know her. You know, this ain't that girl. This ain't the girl I brought before. This is somebody mm-hmm. else. And she's like, no, I know her. And she ran to her bedroom and she took a picture down and she came back to the door and she said, this is Sana, this is her. And she had a picture of me and my twin brother when we were in that foster home, when we were in church, when they had opened their new church. She fellowshiped with them, her and her husband, because his grandmother and grandfather were a pastor and a first lady. And she had a picture of me and my twin brother. And it was the first time I had seen a picture of me at a young age. And I say, remember, I said Christmas Day because it was Christmas when I was 16 years old. And I had cried out to God that I wanted a better life. Mm -hmm. And he made a promise that I was going to get through this. And here we are, full circle, full circle. So I have now been married um, 11 years to that same man. (laughs) Isn't God awesome? Like who else can orchestrate that? Who else can orchestrate that? Who else? That is beautiful. And be so precise on his timing absolutely amazing that's the amazing god that we serve it's like you don't have to have that's that's why um i definitely wanted you to come on this show because you like you don't have to have 
the story that everybody else had. Your life does not have to end, you know, or begin the way, you know, society makes us think that it it should. Exactly. It is the Lord who orchestrates our lives. And he's the only one. And And his grace and his mercy. Yes, when you release control and you allow yourself to surrender to the plan that he already created for you, that's when Mm -hmm. you give him room to do his best work. Absolutely. And he never fails. Absolutely. Well, that 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 is just amazing. And that is just an overview of a snippet of your story because I know that is so so many more stories to you. But let's just um launch into your brand and um introduce them to what you're doing today. So I today I today am unashamed. I am unashamed of who I am. I am unashamed of where I come from. I am ashamed of who I come from. I am just unashamed. I am unashamed that I was molested. I am unashamed that I was adopted. I am unashamed that I was a single mom. I am unashamed that I was a teen mom. I am unashamed. And so it took a long time for me to get to this place of being unashamed. God had to really do some healing in me because I was, I was broken and he did some healing in me. And when the work, the first part of the healing process was completed, he said, if you are so unashamed, I want you to wear your story because there's others that are ashamed right now. And I need them to be unashamed. And so he gave me the vision of unashamed. It's an apparel line. And it's literally a shirt that in the front, it says, I have a story that will make you believe in God. And the back of the story is, the back of the shirt is your story. Whatever your Mm -hmm. story is, whatever it is that the devil or people have tried to shame you of, it is wearing that story. And the key words in wearing that story is I was. Right. I am no longer that. Because God created in me a new being, a new creature. So I am no longer those things. But there are people who are still in it. And so I want to be able to identify with those people and bring them out of the shame. And so we created Unashamed. It is a t-shirt line. It is available on my website that you can purchase. And, you know, the story was my story and has now become the story of so many other men and women that I've met all across the country um, who are saying, I'm unashamed too. Absolutely. And they are stories. Yes, I never shared uh, with you, but I contacted you and I also, me and my baby, wear our unashamed shirts that says, I have a story that will make you believe in God. And I, you, you helped me to not be ashamed that I'd lost my children in the custody battle to their father. And I never told you that, but I, when I first saw your shirts and I first saw the back of the shirt say I was molested, I cringed inside and I was like, Oh my gosh, like she's walking around with that shirt on, you know, these are my thoughts. But then after seeing it time and time again on social media, it, it just does something to, to your heart. That, oh my gosh, if she could boldly walk around and be unashamed, so could I. Yes. And you, like, pushed me to not be ashamed. Oh, 
So you were one of you were one of my midwives to like come on and just tell tell what happened. And that's it because when we take the power back from the shame, like the devil has nothing to fight with. When you when Absolutely. you when you take that power back, it's like what you, what you got for me, devil? What you gonna say? What you gonna say? Mm-hmm. I was molested. I already told tell the world I was molested. Oh, you trying That's to play right. me because I was a single mom? I already told the world I was a single mom. Yes, what you what yes. you got for me? Those things yes. that you trying to shame me? God told me I am still altogether beautiful. I have no Absolutely. flaws. Absolutely. What what is your website? so that people can find it. I will also list it in my description, but I want them to hear it. So my website, as well as all of my social media is Sana Latrice. So my website is Sana Latrice, L-A-T-R-E-A-S-E.com. And all of my social media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube is all Sana Latrice. That's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm a partaker of this movement that you have. I definitely am going to purchase the the whole and healed t-shirt as well. And before we wrap up, I just want to um, give you the floor to just give any personalized encouragement that you would have for the women or men who might be listening to your story today. So the encouragement that I would give you is own your truth. Because as long as you own your truth, nobody can use it to shame you. And when you own it, when you walk in it, when you deal with the ugliness, the hurt, however it makes you feel, and God allows you to heal and overcome it, there's nothing that you can't do. You will literally set this world on fire because God will get all of the glory of who you have become. So you are doing a disservice to not only yourself, but the people that are attached to you that you have not yet even come in contact with that are waiting for you to own your truth so you can help them to own theirs. So I would encourage you to be bold, be beautiful, and be unashamed. Wow, thank you so much. You are beautiful young woman you are an amazing young woman humble i you know you did this thing called the queen's court and got a bunch of ladies together in connecticut how many ladies was it it was about 50 yeah about 50 women from all over connecticut connected us all over you know and caused us to support each other and just that platform alone is is amazing because half of these women I would not have known and we are all celebrating each other and supporting each other it's all because of you and listen (laughs) that's all because of God honey he gave me the vision and said go forth and do it and do it in excellence And I'm just honored that you ladies all came together and you trusted me with your hearts and you you came together and we really built connections that I think will last us a lifetime. Yes. Amazing. You know what? It's a wrap. It's almost time to close. Guys, I want to encourage you to go on to Silent Latrice's website, find out more about her, follow her on Instagram, Facebook. And are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Okay, and follow her on Twitter. I promise you, you will be blessed. Oh, you, one more thing I forgot. Your story of teen motherhood 
is in there is a jewel in me volume volume two yes so you can also okay. purchase there is a jewel in you uh volume two on my website sana latrice and it is um it's amazing it is a, a collective of different authors who were teen mothers and they share their experience as being a teen mother and they offer tips and encouragement to teen mothers that are currently going through and need that encouragement so i would encourage you if you are a teen mother or you know someone who could use that transparency and and that encouragement to please purchase there's a jewel in you Yes, and I second that. I personally have bought this book and read it, and I endorse this book. I want you guys to, if you know a teen mom, buy this book for the teen mom. Um, you know, it's very affordable. Just go ahead and bless somebody and just, you know, read it for yourself and then pass it along. It's an amazing book, and you guys uh, will not be disappointed. Well, Sana, thank you so much for gracing Moments of Joy podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We look forward to seeing all that you will accomplish for the rest of this year and forever. Thank you. you. Okay, we we shall be in touch. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Wow. What a mouthful of an interview that was. I am ecstatic. Sana Latrice, if you're listening, thank you so much for coming on and gracing us with that powerful, powerful testimony. I pray that someone was encouraged today. Someone found a little piece of themselves in her story and they were encouraged to see what God has for their life. I pray that you would be encouraged to find out what your next chapter really consists of. We thank you for joining us for this episode of the Moments of Joy podcast. Don't forget your special devotion of the day, our message that we had at the beginning of the show that reminded you to have joy in the the morning. Just look around, you guys. Take care, and I will see you on next week's episode of the Moments of Joy podcast. Bye-bye. I am ready to receive your joy.